Warning, this episode of Incriminated contains content of violence, detail of crime scenes and sexual assault, so please be aware of this if this triggers or upsets you in any way. Thank you. So let's find out who will be incriminated for this episode. It's a journey he hoped he'd never have to make again. John McAreevy back in Mauritius, still searching for justice. John and Michaela McAreevy came here together on honeymoon six years ago. She was murdered 12 days after their wedding. He's here with his sister Claire, who's a lawyer, and Michaela's brother Mark Hart. They're not saying anything until next week, when they hold a news conference to make a public appeal for information about the killing. In Mauritius, there is surprise that John McAreevy has returned. I think people will be shocked. Uh, people will be shocked because uh, we gathered that he has started a new life and that he would move on and forget about this tragedy. And I think it's, uh, people will be surprised to see him and to see that his uh, quest for the truth is still there. The last time John McAreevy was here was for the trial of two hotel workers accused of the murder. So angry. And I'm so hurt. We had so much faith in the Japanese doing justice for us. And I don't feel we got. I'm disgusted. We know what type of little girl Nicola is. She always will be. Very, very special little girl to us. But she's not what that person tried to make her out to be. And thankfully, the whole nation, the whole world can see that now. Nicola's a good girl. Welcome to Incriminated. This time we will look at two cases and the first one will be about the Michaela Macarivi case. So on the 10th of January 2011, on Monday, 27-year-old Michaela Macarivi was in Mauritius with her new husband, John Macarivi. Michaela and John were from County Tyrone in Northern Ireland and flew to Mauritius as part of their three-week-long honeymoon. Just two weeks before this, they married on the 30th of December in the year 2010 in St Malachy's Church in Ireland. It was a very joyous occasion. Michaela was a primary school teacher and daughter of Mickey Hart, County Tyrone's GAA football club manager, coming from a very well-respected family. John is also a GAA football player playing for the club Tullyish County Down at a local level. He is currently an accountant. The couple spent the first seven days of their honeymoon in Dubai and had a fabulous time together. 
they were due to spend the rest of their honeymoon in the luxurious destination of Mauritius. Michaela and John first met up in the year 2005, have been both attending college in Belfast and had been a couple ever since. Michaela picked Mauritius as a destination for their honeymoon and after researching hotels, they chose the Five Star Legends Hotel as it had great reviews and was popular with Irish guests. It was in the fishing village of Grand Gaub, northeast of the country. They arrived at the hotel on the 8th of January and they were booked in for the all-inclusive package, so all of their meals and activities were all covered. When they were checking in at the hotel, they asked if there was any possibility that they could be upgraded. The hotel confirmed that there was an available room in the deluxe accommodation block and they were booked in their room 1025. On the day of January the 10th, 2011, John and Michaela had breakfast together in the hotel and John went to the golf course for a while afterwards. Michaela then went sunbathing. When John got back, they met up for lunch at 2pm in the Banyan poolside restaurant at the resort. The restaurant was very close to the hotel room. After lunch, they both decided to have some tea and Michaela had brought some biscuits to Mauritius with her. It was dark chocolate Kit Kats and she left them in the fridge and she walked about 150 steps back to the hotel room, placed her key card in the lock to enter their room to get them at about 2.44pm. John stayed downstairs looking at his phone and ordered a cup of tea while he waited. John kept waiting and realised that Michaela seemed to be taking longer than usual to return. First he went to the room and knocked on the door, but Michaela didn't answer. He also checked around the balcony area, but still there was no reply. So he went back to the reception and asked for a spare key room as Michaela had the only key at the time. It was now around 3pm. A bellboy assisted John and entered the room to look for his wife. He found Michaela in the bathtub, which was overflowing and the bath tap still running. John initially thought that she had fainted as Michaela was suffering from back pain before. John panicked and moved her to the ground to save her. He then noticed that she was very cold and her lips were blue and he pleaded with her to wake up and he was screaming for help. The bellboy rushed back and called the general manager. John noticed marks on Michaela's neck and did not know what could have possibly gone wrong. He immediately tried to do CPR, but there was no movement or response from Michaela. Michaela had sadly passed away. John's world had been turned upside down. Everything was a blur at that point for John, and after a short while a doctor came to help and talked with the hotel manager. Poor Michaela was pronounced dead at the scene. John, as distraught as he was, rang home to tell the horrific news to their families. The Mauritian police were called out to the emergency at the hotel and arrived soon after. They had been told there was a drowning at the hotel, but when they entered the room, they believed due to the disturbed state of the room, murder had taken place. It should also be taken into account that multiple people were entering and leaving the room after Michaela was discovered. It was very chaotic. John was brought to the police station for a statement. He later reported at the time that he felt like he was a suspect at first. 
As he was being brought in, he was crying in the back of the jeep and the police were saying, don't worry, you're young, you'll find another wife. John stayed at the police station for several hours trying to describe the events of what happened. The language barrier was also very challenging. John was released and escorted back to the hotel late that night as the hotel manager reported that a stolen master keycard was used to gain entry to the newlyweds room. Some of John and Michaela's family flew to Mauritius to be with him two days later to help him deal with the aftermath of the traumatic incident. A post-mortem later revealed several bruises and abrasions around Michaela's neck and it was determined that the cause of death was asphyxiation. Michaela had been strangled to death. Michaela's murder was now a high-profile murder case in Mauritius. When a murder takes place in a country highly dependent on tourism, there is a rush to have the murder resolved as quickly as possible on the basis of confessions. This was very accurate as arrests were made just one day after the murder. The police had a reputation to behold. Here I will play a segment of a documentary Donald McIntyre done about the murder and you can find this documentary on Ireland Crime Wars YouTube channel if anyone's interested in looking it up. Here Donald discusses what may have happened to Michaela at the time of the murder. Just minutes prior to Michaela entering the room, the distraught husband was released. It was clear from then that it was an inside job. Our cold case team believe that the murder took place in the following manner. A hotel insider, we think perhaps a security officer who had access to keys, entered the premises, entered this room at 2.42pm on one Monday afternoon in January. Two minutes later, Michaela entered the room. We believe that as Michaela entered the room, the thief was already in the bathroom alcove, a little mezzanine, just slightly raised above the bedroom section. We believe that as Michaela entered the room, the thief was here and considered his options. If the thief was a cleaner, he or she simply would have said, oh, I'm cleaning the room, and nothing would have been said. It's a normal hotel situation. Perhaps, though, he was in a security uniform, which the police, we understand, now believe, and he felt that his presence could not be explained away. So he hid in the bathroom, in the toilet, hoping that Michaela would go in and leave very quickly and he'd be able to escape. That didn't happen. Now, Michaela came in. She decided she would use the toilet, go into the toilet for whatever reason. The killer was startled. Michaela started to run. The thief panicked. He grabbed her from behind and held her tight until all life evaporated from her. He didn't have a weapon to hand. What was he to do? He could have run. He chose to take the most desperate of actions and kill Michaela. As soon as he realized that Michaela was dead, he placed her body curiously in the bathtub. He probably did it to create an alternative reason as to why Michaela was murdered or Michaela had died, perhaps drowning. Obviously, that didn't make sense. But to him, in a panic, it may have done. We know that at 3.05, and the killer may still have been in the room, that John McAreevy had signed for his bar bill and had tried to case the room to gain access to see where Michaela was. No sign of her, he decided to go to reception. At 3.26, he entered the room with the assistance of a bellboy. Tragically, he discovered the body of Michaela in the bathtub. 
The Hart and the McCreevy family all flew back home to Ireland with Michaela on the 13th of January and her funeral was held on the 17th of January in the same church she was just married in. This was very heartbreaking for her friends and family. A while after the funeral took place, the investigation was still ongoing in Mauritius and the communication between the Mauritian police and Michaela's family were brutal due to the language barriers. Information was coming in dribs and drabs. Therefore, the PSNI, or the Northern Ireland Police, had to try and assist the Hart and the Macarivi family with inquiries to the Mauritian police. This offered some reassurance to them and thought the investigation was handled relatively well. The family learned later that an organised petty theft ring was operating within the hotel walls that was the cause of Michaela's death. Some responsibility now lies within the owners and managers of the hotel as to who they employ and the strength of security put in place to keep guests safe. For example, the CCTV and lock reads did not work. Centred on the key card used to enter room 1025, now renumbered 1026, in the aftermath of the homicide. Whoever used the master key card to enter Michaela's room two and a half minutes before she did is almost certainly her killer. But the mechanics of these locks we've discovered can give false timings. It seems that each of the hotel's 240 room locks has its own clock and sends individual timings to the hotel security system. The locks are only synced up once every few months, meaning that the accuracy of the door entries cannot be accurately confirmed. We know the killer used a stolen master key card that was kept in the hotel security office, and that points to an inside job. A, a reading for a couple of doors down within, like at exactly the same time, I think, as Michaela was supposed to have put her key card in, which was 244, right, two or three doors down. Somebody else put the key card in at exactly 244 as well, and yet that witness doesn't seem to have been interviewed or identified. Roger Blake, a security hotel expert and former police officer, believes that this is a critical failing. To have a modern system that is out of sync, the, the locks individually out of sync with each other. How can you prove who went in at what time? How can you prove who is guilty, who is, who is innocent? How can you break or make an alibi if you cannot trust the lot reads? It protects you, it protects the guests, it protects the innocent and it convicts the guilty. Despite the fact that the timings are not accurate, it is still clear that there was a stolen master key card used to enter room 1025 just minutes before Michaela was murdered. This single fact excludes husband John McAreevy as a suspect. A hotel is very much like a small country. We control our borders. We control people that walk through the door, be it the front door for guests or the back door for staff. So every member of staff that comes in, they're checked. We check passports. We have the same passport checking system that the immigration people have. It is likely that Michaela interrupted a thief or thieves in her room and met her end in a catastrophe born out of panic and poverty. Poverty itself will breed crime, especially if you're somewhere like Mauritius or you know, one of these other islands which will attract people with money. You have this greater gap between those haves and those have-nots. So consequently, there will always be some jealousy, there will always be something, uh, oh, they won't miss it, they have so much. 
Although one set of hotel workers have been exonerated, it should have been easy to isolate those who could have had access to the security key. Find the person who had that key card and you have the killer. But at the time of the murder, it is clear that the procedures for master key card access was not sufficient to protect guests. If there is a, a communal key that can be used by several people, you have to protect those keys. There has to be accountability. It didn't happen that way here, and someone used the master key card to commit murder. Now, there is a camera over the murder room, but back in January 2011, there were no cameras on these corridors in and around the crime scene. So initially, the cameras are facing out. You're protecting your perimeter. You're protecting the hotel from outsiders coming in specifically to commit crime. You then cite CCTV in strategic points around the hotel. The whole point is to protect our guests at all time. People are very CCTV aware these days. So you cite them visibly because people are aware that it's there, which acts as a deterrent. But it also protects the guests and it keeps the staff in line. So they know they're being watched. Okay, yes, it's a little bit big brother, but at the end of the day, it is our job to protect the guests. Their safety is our priority. Fight or flight, that was the choice facing the killer, according to former police officer and hotel security expert, Roger Blake. Thieves are under stress in two very clear cut situations. When they're attempting to enter a premises, and when they leave a premises. Those are the two times usually that they will be caught. And those are the two times that their stress levels build up. So having got into the room, they're relatively safe. They can take their time, they can look around, they can steal things. But suddenly there they are with stuff on them. And then they come to leave. And that's the time that they could be discovered. They walk out of a room or at that point they walk out and they meet the person coming in. And they're carrying something in their hands that belongs to the other person. They're caught. They're banging to rights as such. People react in different ways. People will try to lie. If they haven't got the intelligence to come out with a coherent sentence, then they may resort to violence. Just within the space of 24 to 48 hours, three male employees of the Legends Hotel were arrested in connection to the murder. Avanish Tribuhan, Sandeep Munia and Raj Tikoy. Charges against Raj were dropped and he agreed to testify on behalf of the prosecution. Former hotel security guard Dasen Narayanan was arrested also. He was charged with conspiracy to commit larceny and confessed that he had a master key card to access the couple's room. Many people from back home in Ireland thought that this was way too rushed and solved way too quickly, in a bid to save the Mauritian tourism industry. Also, on the 17th of January 2011, a radio interview from a station in Mauritius was given to Avanash's defence counsel. The defence lawyer basically stated that his client confessed to the crime and was involved in an incident that went very wrong, and the lawyer basically was downplaying the crime as a one-off incident. He was more interested in saving the tourism business and money and couldn't understand why it was such a high-profile case. This can be heard on John McAreevy's own podcast, Murder in Mauritius. This interview led to this defence counsel to step down, amongst other things, such as conflict of interest. I will read an article from the Irish Times which explains this. 
The article says Ravi Rutna, a barrister for the defendant Avinash Tribuhan, told the court in Mauritius he was stepping down after claiming a senior police officer had attacked his professional integrity while giving evidence. In a final flourish before leaving the Supreme Court in Port Louis, the lawyer declared to the jury that he would be back in, quote, Arnold Schwarzenegger style, end quote. The development left a cloud of uncertainty in the proceedings. It came after prosecution witness Chief Inspector Luciano Gerard outlined to the court how Mr Tribuhan had confessed to murdering the daughter of the Tyrone Gaelic football boss Mickey Hart, along with co-worker Sandeep Munia, in her room at the Island's Luxury Legends Hotel in January that year 2011. In the statement, the accused was said to have asked for forgiveness and said that they only intended to steal from the 27-year-old, but when she came back unexpectedly and caught them red-handed, he said, if the woman did not come, we would have stole the money, he told police. He also went on to say, we don't know her, we had no reason to kill her, but because she saw us, we had to kill her, end quote. As well as reading the defendant's admission statement, which described in graphic detail the tragic last moments as she fought for her life, Mr Gerard made a series of claims about Mr Rutner. He said he was late arriving for a meeting with his client after he signalled his desire to make a confession statement and also shared food, such as fried rice, in a convivial atmosphere with investigating police officers. Mr Rutner said that this amounted to an accusatory attack on his reputation. Quote, As a direct consequence of that, I have decided to withdraw representing accused number one, Avanish Tribuhan, he said. The lawyer also added, I wish to withdraw but I will be back in Arnold Schwarzenegger style. Avinash and Sandeep pleaded not guilty and the case went to trial on May 22nd, 2012. Michaela's family knew from the get-go that when they returned to Mauritius for the trial that it was rigged from the start. The tactics the defence lawyers were using were far from the norm you would see in Ireland or the UK. For example, they were trying to diminish John's character by saying how he was a rich famous footballer and that he was married before and his last wife died and that he had a life insurance policy for Michaela in place in case of the event of her death. All of these were of course lies. It was the prosecution's case that when Michaela went back to her room on that day, the 10th of January, that she disturbed a burglary. When she entered the room, she found the two men inside and they were stealing money from her purse. They strangled Michaela to death so that she would not be able to identify them. It was their case also that the two men, who were both hotel employees at the time, would have had access to the magnetic master keycard that they used this keycard to gain entry into the couple's room. They referred to the confession of Dacien in relation to his statement that he gave them a keycard. The prosecution's theory revealed that another hotel attendant, Raj Tikoy, claimed he was outside the room and heard noises of a female in pain. He hid around a corner. He saw Avinash and Sandeep leaving the room going in opposite directions. He approached them to ask what had happened and was told, quote, Nothing happened, just keep quiet. If you say anything, I'll get you involved in the case. 
end quote. The jury heard that one of the accused, Avanash, had confessed. He told the police that Michaela had caught himself and Sandeep red-handed inside her hotel room. Avanash was in the area around the bed. He had John's wallet. At that point, Michaela confronted him. Sandeep was in the bathroom hiding. Both men panicked and Sandeep came out and said, she can identify us, we have to kill her. And that is what they did. Michaela attempted to stop Avanash from leaving the room and Sandeep choked her from behind and dragged her into the bathroom. Michaela was fighting for her life at this stage. The tap on the bath was turned on to wash away any DNA that may be on Michaela's body. This matches the autopsy report. Also, Michaela had a head injury from when she fell back after being choked. This was also relayed by Avanash's confession. No coercion was made by police whatsoever. It was given voluntarily in the presence of his lawyer. There was also a recording of Avanash's interrogation where the court heard he was apologising to his family as to what he had done, but defence turned this around and said he was apologising for leaving home. The court and jury also heard from the chief security officer of the hotel, Mohammed Imrish, who said there was a recording that the door of the room 1025 was opened by someone using a supervisor card. This took place on around 2.42pm on the day of the 10th of January. Now I will talk about the defence's theory. In the case of the defence, Avanash and Sandeep had both been set up and both of them were innocent. It was their case that the police investigation was sloppy. They argued that a number of basic tests and checks were not carried out and some of the tests were only carried out after the room had been released back to the control of the hotel and as such the evidence was compromised or cross-contaminated. The hotel was not barricaded off properly after Michaela's body had been found and guests, some of them who stayed in the bedroom beside the couple's room, were not interviewed or spoken to by police. A senior officer at the MCIT admitted that they failed to interview a number of the guests at the hotel and who were staying close to the room 1025. The defence also argued that no DNA was found that indicated their clients were guilty and further argued that a number of the items that should have been tested for DNA had not been tested. The person questioned that the accused men were stealing from was not fingerprinted or sent from DNA testing either. Samples from a number of items recovered from the crime scene on swabs from Michaela were sent to Cellmark Forensic Services in the UK for specialist DNA tests. This expert, Susan Woodruff, told the court that no matches with the two men were identified. However, she did identify a potential match with Sandeep on the keycard for the room and a possible DNA match for him on a cupboard in the room. She told the court that the police had not taken sufficient precautions to prevent the contamination of samples on the crime scene. Defence counsel also said that a bikini top found on Michaela should not have been sent to the DNA cell mark as it had traces of blood on it. Akiza Muradun from the Mauritian Forensic Science Services told the court that she carried out tests on swabs taken from Michaela's neck. 
The results produced a genetic match that was likely to be Michaela's. Some fingerprints and palm prints were also found in the room. One of the defence lawyers argued that the confessions given in relation to Michaela's murder were only given under duress circumstances. Dacian Narayanan, who claimed he gave Sandeep the keycard, retracted the confession he gave. He claimed he was forced to make a confession by the police. He was allegedly held up by gunpoint. The police then denied this. In relation to Avinash's confession, he also retracted it. He claims that despite signing it with his lawyer present, he was forced to sign it due to the police brutality. The defence alleged that he was beaten by the police and forced to make a confession due to the torture he had to endure at the hands of the police. He claimed the torture included water torture, which caused him to vomit blood. He also reiterated that none of this statement was read back to him and he signed the document that was put in front of him. He did not know the full details and he claimed that the police told him that his wife would be deported to live in Ireland with John unless he confessed. The jury also heard that all the photos of the crime scene were only taken in black and white. A number of the items that the defence team deemed relevant items were not photographed. The court also heard that the dark chocolate Kit Kats that Michaela went back to the room to get had allegedly been moved in the days after her murder. One of the room attendants testified next. He claimed that he had also been forced to give false statements by police, but he wanted to retract his statement. He told the jury that he was with Sandeep when Michaela was murdered in room 1009, which is some distance from the room 1025. They were between the times of 2.40pm and 3pm, he told the court. Sandeep blamed me for having improperly cleaned the room 1008, he said. He then asked me to repeat the cleaning. Then I took care of the chamber 1009, where VIP clients were expected. He told me the floor was not clean and took the brush to show me how to clean it. He was always with me. The defence raised the issue that there may have been a sexual element to the crime and indicated that John may have even been involved. They referred to a sex guide that was found in the hotel room. However, it transpires that the sex guide was just an insert from a woman's magazine Cosmopolitan that Michaela purchased at the airport's duty-free. Here I will play a clip of how criminologist David Wilson profiles this specific murder. If I was profiling this crime on the day that it happened, I would be saying it was a man who did this. Most murders are committed by men. It was somebody who had, who was able to gain access to a locked room and therefore was probably employed by the hotel. I would say the fact that the perpetrator strangled from behind implied that this wasn't interpersonal. This had no sexual element to it. And I would be saying that because it had no sexual element to it, and there were other aspects in relation to placing Michaela's body in the bath, that this wasn't planned. This is somebody who was panicking. This is somebody who was disorganized. This is somebody, therefore, who left quite a bit of evidence in the room itself that the police should have been able to harness very quickly in bringing the correct suspect to justice. A crime that started out as a robbery and eventually ends up 
as a murder. He's surprised, he's taken unawares, he is panicking, and therefore he's not thinking clearly, he's thinking in the moment, and therefore he has to find some way then of disposing with a body. He can't literally dig a, a grave and place Michaela in the grave. He can't transport her body to another part of the island because he would be seen, he would be captured on CCTV. Therefore, he's got to find some way of disposing of her body and make that disposal as best as he can, panicking, look as if the death might have occurred through natural consequences. So there might be a sense in which he thought, I'll place her in the bath and people might think that she sim simply slipped into the bath, she may have drowned or so forth. The second instrumental reason is by placing her body in the bath, uh, you also destroy a significant amount of forensic evidence. The classic uh, phrase that one would use in these kinds of um, scenes is that every contact leaves a trace. Well, if you put the body in the bath, you are literally washing away the contact between the perpetrator and the victim. Strangulation is a very sexual form of uh, murder and usually an experienced killer will want to see the victim um, face to face as the victim dies and there are a number of reasons why he would gain sexual pleasure from that fact. He is literally watching the life of another person drain in front of his eyes. A hotel resort is almost like um, a mini island. It's almost like you can control the people who are there, you know who's there or who should be there. Admittedly, people can come and go, but this is relatively easy to solve because there should be CCTV. People will be able to determine where you were at particular times, at particular points in the day. And of course, classically, you would also, in this disorganized crime scene, have quite a lot of forensic evidence that you could use to also identify the perpetrator. We don't know who strangled her, but we have a good idea why. The broader context is poverty, the circumstances in which this perpetrator undoubtedly lived. Because you've got to remember that Mauritius is a developing country and, you know, there will be people working there for um, incomes that are well below the incomes they would earn in Ireland or in England. And therefore, the idea that not only are you panicking because you, you've been caught in someone's room when you shouldn't be, the threat for you is that you're going to lose your job. And that job might be supporting not just yourself and your immediate family, it might also be supporting your extended family. Last of all, during court proceedings, one of the defence lawyers admitted CCTV footage into evidence. This showed a couple appearing to be arguing at the reception area of the hotel. In their opinion, this was taken before the murder took place. There was no sound on the footage, but the couple's body language appeared off. Also, the couple were facing away from the camera, so it was very hard to identify them. The defence were trying to convince the jury that this couple was in fact John and Michaela, but in fact it was a couple from Germany.
Also, 15 to 20 minutes after the couple were recorded walking to the reception area, John was caught walking returning to the reception area from his room. The defence wanted to create as much doubt as possible, making out the couple had an argument at reception and making out that John allegedly killed his wife and he came back out to reception with different shorts on. This was absolutely false. The Hart and the McCreevy family were able to track down this German couple and they had to make a statement to Mauritian police to prove it. To prove that it wasn't John and Michaela at reception. The receptionist at the time confirmed this as well. The media and newspapers in Mauritius got a hold of this evidence before it was introduced to court and had an absolute field day with it. It was a case that was supposed to last just two weeks, but lasted almost eight weeks. The jury deliberated for around two hours and found the men not guilty. After the not guilty verdict, a new investigation was launched, but nothing of significance was found. An elite task force was set up in 2017 to investigate further a review that was ordered in August 2020, but according to authorities, no new evidence was found that warranted a reopening of the case of a retrial. The investigation was officially closed in 2020. Although that there has been no justice for Michaela or her family, her family have acted with dignity and grace as they continue to fight to get some answers and justice for the truth. They have had to experience attacks on them by the media in Mauritius and photographs of Michaela's body and injuries she sustained were published without their consent. Michaela was a much-loved member of her family. She was the only daughter of Marion and Mickey Hart and had three brothers. Mickey told the Irish Daily Mirror that he cannot find hatred for the men who killed Michaela. He said, I've tried to conjure up those feelings, but they just won't come. There is no hatred inside me for them or anyone else, and I honestly think that Michaela is right by my side, keeping me calm. John has since remarried. John and Michaela's family sued the Legends Hotel for 1.6 million euro after the trial. They reached an out-of-court financial settlement. The details of the settlement have not been made public and the hotel has since been renamed to the Lux Hotel. Even until this very day, John has never stopped fighting for justice for Michaela. Here is an example of this when he returned to Mauritius in 2017. They've travelled 6,000 miles to be here. And they've already made it clear that this visit may not be their last. If we have to be back next week, we will be back. If we have to be back next month, next year, we will be here as long as it takes to ensure that this case is resolved. If I'm still standing here in 20 years, so be it. Michaela Makarivi was killed while on honeymoon six years ago. Two hotel workers later stood trial, but both were found not guilty. No one has ever been convicted of her murder. John Makarivi is trying to change that. Helping him is his Mauritian lawyer, Dickon Senwa, Michaela's eldest brother, Mark Hart, and John's sister, Claire. She's also a lawyer. Their first meeting today was with the police. It appeared to go well. Uh, we've been assured that uh, the police have their elite task force working on this case. Uh, we hope uh, that that is the case. 
Uh, we've communicated that we are very much involved in this process now. We'll be doing all we can to assist the Mauritian authorities in delivering justice for Michaela. Next up was a meeting with the Director of Public Prosecutions. He made it clear that he too was hopeful that the case would eventually be solved, but he admitted he couldn't give any guarantees. There's a new Prime Minister in Mauritius, and John McAreevy desperately wanted to meet him, but one MP lobbied against it, Ravi Rutna. He's a high-profile Member of Parliament, but back in 2012 he was a defence lawyer for part of the murder trial, and at the weekend, he said John McAreevy shouldn't be given special treatment in Mauritius. I anticipate that the Prime Minister is not meeting him and should not meet him because you met on the last occasion, you met the Prime Minister of this country, you met the Commissioner of Police in this country, you met a number of officers, you were treated like the blue-eyed boy in Mauritius. But the Prime Minister did meet him. He expressed his personal sympathy to us uh, for what happened. Um, but most importantly, above everything else, he has assured us of he will do everything that he can uh, to ensure that justice prevails. The hotel where Michaela Macarevi was killed still exists and is still busy. Six years on, it's been renamed. But what happened here has not been forgotten in Mauritius, especially now that John Macarevi is back on the island. Mark Simpson, BBC Newsline, Mauritius. But you've been silent. I mean, you've allowed, if you like, a respectful silence, perhaps in the hope that the Mauritian authorities would, you know, resuscitate this case and, and do something. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, we to get justice for Michaela, we were always going to be in the mercy of the, the hands of the, the Mauritian authorities. And our approach was, look, there's no point shouting and roaring here and, you know, getting their backs up. We needed these guys on side with us and we felt to just support them and to give them opportunity to, you know, to right the wrongs that happened in 2012. Uh, we felt that that was our best chance at actually delivering mm -hmm. justice. So that was always the main objective. Um, but as time has went on, um, you know, that has just sort of failed and failed away. They had been keeping in touch with you, hadn't they? Well... Um, after the trial in 2012, um, there was a bit of a flurry of activity and then everything went quiet. And then that's why I returned in 2017. I returned to Mauritius to, to launch uh, an appeal uh, for information from the public that could potentially uh, lead uh, to the, you know, to the, the investigation being reopened. Um, I suppose what's important, actually, one important thing that the Mauritian authorities did do in 2012 was that they brought in legislation that if there was new, fresh and compelling evidence that could be brought to a case, then a, a, a case that had already been tried before could be reopened. In other words, uh, the idea of double jeopardy, exactly. that if you're acquitted under a double jeopardy, there's a great movie about double jeopardy. That's if right. you're acquitted, you cannot be tried again. Yes. And it's the stuff of fiction. But that would have been the case in Mauritius, but that, now there's a new law. Yes, and, you know... That was significant for, well, for a couple of things, really. I mean, for us, it really, it showed that, and, and that's, uh, I get into this in the podcast as well, but it highlights just how certain the Mauritian prosecution was of the, the people that were responsible for Michaela's death, because they wouldn't have wanted to do that if there was any sort of doubt. And for us, it gave us hope. 
because you know after 2012 we felt well that's it it's gone now but whenever this year came in we felt well okay and that's why we didn't as i say you know talk about you know you didn't make waves we didn't make waves because we felt okay look this has happened but let's just rally in behind them and give them the opportunity to right the wrongs and i suppose that's unfortunately that hope and it's always been hope throughout this year sort of past nine years it's it's been met with you know the Mauritian Authority saying the right things and then all of a sudden you know you know nothing happened. There had been knocks on the door before when you both and where Michaela on her own was in the room and the room was offered for cleaning shall we say yeah but you didn't want to clean you had do not disturb on the door. Yeah we had and I suppose the beauty of a podcast is that you can get into the detail and the facts that actually are important and that matter uh, and that's what the podcast gave us the platform to do. So, yeah, I mean, there was things that and, and why these details are significant was because they all play a part in the huge evidence um, that was yeah. used uh, against the two men that were acquitted um, of, of Michaela's murder. And that's what we wanted to focus on. We wanted to focus on the detail, focus on the evidence, because for us, it's hugely overwhelming. Because it is the detail that, that gives truth to the narrative, such a powerful truth. A knock on the door, do you want the, the room clean? No, thank you. Knock on the door again, do you want the room clean? No. Yeah. And it becomes kind of, when you look back on it, apparent that they were casing the joint for when it might be exactly. vacant. Exactly. And, you know, we would learn after that, you know, this wasn't certainly a one-off event. I mean, there was a crime ring that operated within the hotel and, you know, they used, you know, different members would be a lookout and some, you know, and they would talk and they were very careful. This had been going on for a number of years. And in fact, you know, after everything that had happened, um, you know, people reached out to me through social media that it stayed. Uh, and the same in, thing in had happened hotel. to them. They'd and been the, robbed. The same thing that happened to them, yeah. And uh, one guy always remember, uh, he had returned to his room and he actually he caught somebody in the act, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, it happened and, you know, you know, theft happens, that's fine, that's just part of life, you know, but for it to turn so cruelly, it just, it was so unnecessary, it was so unnecessary. Michaela came back and she saw someone in the room mm -hmm. not knowing there were two yeah. and that was, the Mauritius authorities did what they did because this was hugely damaging to Mauritius. Yeah, and that was talked about right from the start and... I suppose it's one of the important features in the podcast when we start to talk about the evidence was that one of the lawyers um, for Avenus Tribune, one of the men that was acquitted of the murder, he went on a live radio in Mauritius um, about four or five days after Michaela was murdered and went on and apologised uh, to myself and to the Hart family uh, for what his client had did. He went on to live radio and apologised and said, you know, I don't know why this is such a big thing. You know, um, people from Mauritius get murdered every day and there's not, not a big uh, sort of deal made about it. You know, there's no international journalists coming over, you know, for any other reason. So it did play a part in the in the, the whole case. And as but he's on radio and he's on he radio. is confirming... That his yeah. client has admitted to the murder, that he did the murder. That I mean, end of. You end would of. Think. You, would, you would think that that would be well open and shut. And yes, there was a lot of pressure on Mauritius authorities to ensure that justice was delivered. But why wouldn't there be? Why wouldn't there be? But 
people had talked, well, you know, this year's sort of international press, there's no pressure at all. And obviously they have to look after their tourism industry and everything. But at the end of the day, they got the right man. A guy confessed, a guy seen uh, the two perpetrators come out of the room. I mean, the evidence is just so strong here. And that's why we really wanted to talk about uh, the the depth of the evidence in the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a kind of a thing that, you know, round up the usual suspects, the hapless, helpless, mm. uh, poor peasants. Yeah. Yeah, and they were the fall guys for something else. But in fact, there was an eyewitness who actually saw these guys emerging from the room. There was, and um, you know, he was I suppose shot down. Like, but like that guy had nothing to gain. He had yeah. nothing to lose. I mean, you know, he only came forward, you know, two days after Michaela died because he spoke to his wife and his mother, and they could see that something was up with him, and they said, you know, if you know something that has happened here, tell the truth. You need to tell the truth. You need to do the right thing here, and that's why he came forward and he gave his evidence, and still. It wasn't yeah. enough. And and later on in the court case, and we'll come to what happened when you returned to the island for the court case, part of the defence was that the confession was given under duress, and yet the solicitor was present. The solicitor was sitting beside him as he gave the interview, or gave his confession. Um, it was all very cordial. Um, they sat and had food together. Um, there was, you know, all these here allegations of mistreatment happened after. So there was none... There was none, the none of these allegations at the time. So, like, that's... And throughout this podcast, we go into the detail of all these things, and I would like people to listen to all this. It, it turned out that locals had killed Michaela. There was massive sympathy for yeah. for uh, visitors to the island and what it said about Mauritian hospitality mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. You come back, and the mood has changed entirely, and the, there are rumours around that you had been married before. Yeah, and well, the other wife, the first wife, was dead. Yeah, you'd killed her. Huge insurance. I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, talk about a contrast. I mean, for us, we were going over there simply. Well, I had to be a witness in the case, but we were going over there essentially to see justice be delivered and yeah. just to close this chapter and to move on with you know the thing that was important. You know, it's sort of rebuilding our lives. But it was going to be a completely different scenario, and we knew that we were in we were in the land's day. And at that point, um, you could feel the hostility towards us. We were there, and it was almost like, "Why are you here? Get out of our country! You're bringing this here sort of bad image upon our country." And what? And that was all caused by the defense team because they had started to spread all these rumours like you'd said there, Pat. And, and you were supposed to be a very wealthy footballer. Yeah. Like, like Ronaldo. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like they obviously, I don't know, that they, they obviously felt that, I don't know, mixed up football with GA or whatever the hell it was. And yeah, they just, they painted this image as these, I always felt it was like these white, wealthy Westerners and coming in and then against these poor, you know, impoverished men that were just plucked up because somebody had to be held responsible. And that's that's the narrative that they have scripted. And the defence team did a good job at that. And, you know, like, again... So the implication was that you were really responsible for this. Yeah, well, I that guess... That's what the rumour mill was propagating so that it could lead to the acquittal. Because the jury members are just... Jury members. The jury members, yes. But I guess, I suppose, the jury was always going to have to come from, you know, the people, you know, they're going to have to come from the island of Mauritius. So if you have 18 months spreading rumours, then how are you going to get an unbiased jury? And of course, the big thing, and we talk about this a lot in the podcast, is that 
the members of the jury are meant to be sequestered, okay? And you've got this, the media out there just saying whatever they want. So, like, we're on the way to court one day, you know, in the police vehicle. And every morning, the first thing on the news radio is this case. And then they ran this poll amongst the public in Mauritius about who was responsible for Michaela's death. And I come out at the top of the poll. So, like... How do you, how are you meant to get an unbiased jury when all this here is going on? We talk about this in the podcast even more. The jury members were allowed home. Yeah, they were allowed their phones. Like, how are you meant to get justice? How are you meant to deliver justice? And these are the questions that the Mauritian authorities have to answer, and they haven't answered them. Meantime, it's not easy. I mean, people think of honeymoon island, paradise island, Mauritius. The, the defence for these two men, they just used this as a platform to, to just be the greatest entertainers and to showcase everything that they had got. And they made it all about them. And, you know, they would play up to the gallery and the gallery would respond. And everybody was sitting laughing. And all the while, like, we're sitting there. We've got two men sitting over to our left who had killed, brutally killed Michaela. And... This is this is just our life now, and you have a judge sitting up there that's allowing it all to happen. Like, you know, why like why treat us? Why treat you know a person that has been killed with such contempt, such disrespect? It was completely unnecessary, um, and it was just it was just one of the million things that we had to deal with. And and the the question of identity, the German couple at reception, and all of this sort of stuff. Yeah, they, they would literally, the defence would literally throw anything at the wall that would just cast doubt upon who's responsible here, you know. And even the lengths that we had to go to, like we should have been sitting there observing justice. We were playing active roles in this case. You know, we were in the DPP office looking at CCTV footage at the reception of the day that Michaela was murdered. And it was the first time that they had looked at it. And this was to try to see, God, is this German couple actually John and Michaela? And like, why are you looking at this here for the first time? Then I had to search for this German guy on Facebook and ask him, can you please make a declaration to the German police that this actually wasn't you? You know, and then it actually turned out there was an Irish journalist that actually tracked him down and got and, and it got resolved. But like the video clip of of the German couple um at reception this was all playing out and it was going to be discussed in court the next day. But the Mauritian media took a screen grab and actually printed it um, or they put it actually all up on their website the morning before this was actually uh, entered in as evidence. And like, how can this happen? Like, how can this happen? So like, this is the reason why we are doing this I, podcast, well, you know. I would sir I've never been to Mauritius and I certainly after hearing this I wouldn't want to go even though I'm sure there are lovely people there decent people Absolutely but anything could happen to you and you would not be yeah, served well look, by the authorities You know what you know it's it only takes a couple of bad apples pat but at the end of the day you know as a country if you're going to showcase your country as paradise then you have to be responsible and you have to ensure that things are done right so you can't continue to just Ignore your problems and, and expect, you know, foreign travellers to come over and visit your country if you're not going to right the wrongs. So That was an interview John McAreevy done with Pat Kenny on his show on his podcast Murder in Mauritius. A major update has been revealed in Michaela's case in the last week. 
The government of Mauritius has agreed to look again at the case. The former DUP leader Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill have confirmed this. The former DUP leader and First Minister and Sinn Féin's Vice President met the Makariri family a couple of weeks ago to update them on the progress following engagement and conversations with the Mauritian government. John welcomed the news and the new developments on the case, tweeting, quote, a significant step in the right direction. Thank you, Michelle and Darlene, end quote. Mrs Foster and Miss O'Neill said that options are currently being explored on how best to further support the family in their efforts to see justice being made. Arlene Foster said, Quote, the fact that more than 10 years later no one has been brought to justice for this most dreadful crime only serves to compound the grief and pain endured by Michaela's family. She also added, I felt both a personal and professional responsibility to do everything possible to bring about justice for a young woman who was so cruelly taken from the many people who knew and loved her, and I'm pleased that one of my last duties as First Minister was to update the family on this important progress and show my support for their unrelenting campaign." End quote. The process and details of the review have not been confirmed and the Mauritian government did not respond to any queries about it yet. While a spokesman for the Northern Ireland executive said no further details were available. A spokeswoman for the Department of Foreign Affairs said it has provided ongoing counsellor assistance to the family in relation to the case and has been monitoring developments closely. Quote, as with all consular cases, it would not be appropriate to discuss the details of the case at this time, she said. So now we will have to wait and see will the Mauritian government stay true to their word and reinvestigate this case. Thank you for listening to this episode of Incriminated. I'm your host, Francesca Hayes. You can find us on Instagram at IncriminatedPod or you can find us on Twitter at IncriminatedPO1. We are now on YouTube now and you can search it by Incriminated to Crime Podcast. Intro music is by Owen Leonard and other music is by Mivavi Editor Plus. All research links and accredited journalists will be linked down below in the episode details. For any requests you can also email at incriminatedpod.yahoo.com and I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Enjoy the rest of your week and take care.